Chapter 3 of Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Trinity Church. Simeon was ordained deacon in Ely Cathedral on Trinity Sunday, May 26, 1782. He was still under the canonical age of 23 and must have obtained a faculty. A course then, but not now, possible in the matter of deacon's orders. His title for orders was his fellowship, to which he had succeeded January 29. The ordaining bishop was James York, a personal friend of Mr. Simeon the Father, a friendship important in the sequel. At this time he was still an undergraduate. His bachelor's degree was not taken till January 1783, but he had no doubt taken his degree in college, as the phrase was, some months already. In those days and long afterwards the members of King's had the singular privilege of exemption from all university examinations as distinguished from those of their college, and the fellowships were taken by routine and seniority. New fellows exchanged at once the ordinary gown of the undergraduate for a more dignified robe with full sleeves. Though now ordained, he had no settled pastoral work in prospect, and he had been at a loss to find an incumbent under whom he could hopefully begin the labours for which he longed. Before his ordination, he tells us, he had some thoughts of putting an advertisement in the newspapers to announce that a young clergyman who felt himself an undone sinner and who looked alone to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and desired to live only to make him known was persuaded that there must be some persons in the world whose views and feelings accorded with his own and that if there were any minister of this description he would gladly become his curate and serve him gratis. But this singular expedient proved unnecessary for some time before May 1782, he had regularly attended St. Edward's Church near King's College, a church where Hugh Latimer had ministered in his day. There he had found some spiritual assistance in the preaching of the good and lovable vicar, Christopher Atkinson, tutor of Trinity Hall, and gladly would have made his acquaintance, but did not care to introduce himself. He hoped that the sight of a young gownsman attending regularly and devoutly would have led to an invitation. Mr. Atkinson, it afterwards appeared, had taken this gownsman for a staunch Pharisee, and rather avoided him for some time. But at last the ice was broken, the invitation came, and in a conversation tete-a-tete, -tete, the vicar was greatly surprised to hear the supposed formalist drop some expressions which conveyed the idea of his feeling himself a poor, guilty, helpless sinner. Two important results followed that conversation. Mr. Atkinson introduced Simeon to John Venn of Sydney, and soon after Simeon's ordination he welcomed him as his own honorary curate. John Venn, afterwards the beloved and honoured rector of Clapham, was son of Henry Venn, then rector of the secluded village of Yelling, about twelve miles west of Cambridge, just over the Huntingdonshire border. Henry Venn, Batty's University Scholar in 1747 and sometime Fellow of Queen's, was the descendant of a long line of clergymen and himself as true-hearted a minister as the English Church has ever owned. 
He was now a man of 58, after a laborious and singularly fruitful pastorate at Huddersfield, finding his strength decline, he had accepted Yelling in 1771, and there lived a life of apostolic simplicity, preaching week by week to a congregation of shepherds and ploughmen, writing on spiritual subjects to a large circle of correspondence, and now latterly welcoming visits from the Cambridge friends of his son John. If Henry Venn's conversation may be judged by his letters, it was no wonder that these men were glad to walk or ride over from Cambridge to the primitive village rectory. They found there an elder friend who combined the deepest religious experience and the purest and firmest faith with a natural character as strong and genial as possible, and with a great wealth of admirable good sense. Simeon was not long in making his acquaintance. John Venn's diary tells us the process. 1782, June 1, drank tea at Atkinson's with Simeon, an undergraduate fellow of King's, a religious man. June 2, Sunday, drank tea with Simeon, who preached his first sermon today at St. Edward's and Atkinson. On the 7th, John Venn went home to Yelling, where he was just then alone. On the 13th, he writes, Simeon of King's walked over from Cambridge to see me, walked on the terrace with him and in church. 14th, rode over with Simeon to Everton to introduce him to Mr. Berridge. A month later, June 14, Simeon invited himself again to Yelling to see his friend's father. I propose, with the blessing of God, riding over on Tuesday morning next, before eight o'clock, or at furthest a quarter after. To converse with your father has long been my desire. He came and stayed till past eight at night. No record remains of that long summer's day, but it was a bright epoch for the young curate of St. Edward's, the first day of a friendship of fourteen years which left a profound impression. Many a morning did he ride to Yelling, over the then almost hedgeless country, and in Henry Venn's holy wisdom, kind humour, and entire freedom from eccentricity, he found guidance and correctives at many critical moments in his early years of difficult ministry. His attachment to this venerable friend grew till it was a sacred passion. Forty years later, he writes to Venn's grandson, the Reverend Edward Elliot of Brighton, I have defied your grandfather to get out of my reach so long as there are any on earth that have his blood in their veins. I have exalted in this and do exult in it and will exult in it. He can do nothing for me now, but I can, at least in desire and purpose, for him though in the efforts of a thousand years I can never repay my obligations to him for all his labours of love. To John Venn, after his father's death, he wrote thus of the sacred retrospect. I dislike the language of panegyric, and therefore forbear to expatiate upon a character which is in my estimation above all praise. Scarcely ever did I visit him, but he prayed with me. Scarcely ever did I dine with him, but his ardour in returning thanks, sometimes in an appropriate hymn, and sometimes in a thanksgiving prayer, has inflamed the souls of all present, so as to give us a foretaste of heaven itself, and in all the years that I knew him I never remembered him to have spoken unkindly of any one, but once, and I was particularly struck with the humiliation he expressed for it in his prayer the next day. In 1833, to another of Venn's grandsons, the late Reverend John Venn of Hereford, he writes one noble sentence of recollection. I wish you had known your honoured grandfather. The only end for which he lived was to make all men see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Henry Venn, on his part, has recorded some of his impressions of Simeon. 
on Trinity Sunday was ordained Mr. Simeon, Fellow of King's College. Before that day he never was in company with an earnest Christian. Soon after he was visited by Mr. H. Jowett and my son, and two or three more. In less than seventeen Sundays, by preaching for Mr. Atkinson in a church at Cambridge, he filled it with hearers, a thing unknown there for near a century. He has been over to see me six times within the last three months. He is calculated for great usefulness and is full of faith and love. My soul is always the better for his visits. Oh, to flame as he does with zeal, and yet be beautified with meekness. The day he was a substitute for Mr. Atkinson, he began to visit the parishioners from house to house. Full of philanthropy was his address. I am come to inquire after your welfare. Are you happy? His evident regard for their good disarmed them of their bitterness, and it is amazing what success he has met with. So the ministry of half a century began in the power of spiritual sincerity and directness. The communicants were soon thrice as numerous as before. The church, filled with hearers, must have been full indeed to judge by one quaint story. It reaches me through the kindness of the present vicar, the Reverend J. J. Leas, from the late Bishop Ollivant of Landaff, who knew Simeon well. Such was the crowd which came to hear the substitute that it overflowed from pews and aisles even into the sanctum of the clerk's desk. The vicar, returning from his holiday, found his clerk perturbed, but happy in the prospect of relief. "'Oh, sir, I am so glad you are come. Now we shall have some room.' It is pleasant to think that the report of those words must almost certainly be due to the good nature of Mr. Atkinson. One pastoral incident on the first Sunday is preserved. Walking after service along the narrow lane near the church, St. Edward's Passage, Simeon heard through an open doorway the loud quarrelling voices of a man and his wife. Entering the house, he solemnly appealed to them and then knelt down to pray. The room was soon full of a respectful group, and the young man's reputation for loving earnestness was made already. The summer passed in these labours. In October he was at home, watching and ministering by the deathbed of his eldest brother Richard, the most affectionate of brothers, whom he saw depart in the peace of Christ. But his father and his two surviving brothers were decidedly hostile to Charles's new opinions. The father almost commanded him to renounce the friendship of their pious neighbour, the Honourable W. B. Cadigan, afterwards vicar of St. Mary's Reading and elder friend of the late Dr. William Marsh of blessed memory. The brothers used every current argument to bring him out of his enthusiasm, but he met them, to judge from letters of this time, with equal firmness, good sense, and good temper. Both John and Edward Simeon afterward came into full agreement with their brother. Edward died in 1813. We shall see later what his gratitude was for his younger brother's loving counsels. The father retained his prejudices to the last, and in his will left a portion to his son Charles in trust. Yet this same son, after the eldest brother's death, had been on the point of giving up his Cambridge life and prospects that he might fill the empty place at home. It was suggested by the family that he should do so, and his only condition was that he should have a part in the house to himself, and so see his friends without interfering with his father. He was about to pack his books and within a fortnight to vacate his new rooms in the fellow's building, but just then came the unlooked-for call to a very different future. Henry Theronde, minister of Trinity Church Cambridge, died, and Simeon was appointed his successor. 
Trinity Church stands in Market Street, a few paces east of the marketplace, from which its modest spire is seen above the houses. The tower and porch date from the 13th century, the nave from the 15th, and transepts and north aisle from the 16th. An ancient low-browed chancel of the decorated period was removed in 1833, and a new and loftier chancel built, a structure considerably remodelled within the last few years. Old engravings of the interior of the church, as it was seventy years ago, show it filled with high pews, all shut with doors. In the transept, as now appears a deep gallery, then reached by a staircase in its front. But this gallery was put up by Simeon. The pulpit, removed in 1833, was wooden, furnished with a sounding board. It stood just outside the chancel, to the south, and was immediately overlooked by the transept gallery. Trinity Parish contained then, as now, about 1,500 people resident in the streets close to the church and in the long outlying district of King Street, the poorer part. The history of Trinity Church, interesting now above all because of Simeon's long ministry there, is only less interesting when we trace it to the 17th century and particularly to its first 40 years, the period of the great church Puritans. It was then, in some sense, the religious centre of the town, as Great St. Mary's was, and is, of the university. In the registers of the parish, under date November 1610, is preserved a general request of the parishioners, with the full and free consent of Mr. John Wildbore, our minister, to Mr. Sibbs, public preacher of the town of Cambridge. He is invited to use Trinity Church as his place of preaching in consideration of the extreme straightness and diverse other discommodities concerning the accustomed place of the exercises, and with the desire that the town might have more public benefit of his ministry. He is asked to exercise his auditory in the ancient and usual day and hour, that is to say, as we know otherwise, to undertake the town lecture, apparently already established at one o'clock on Sundays. The lecture was an institution expressly sanctioned by the king in council and sustained by subscriptions gathered from all the parishes of the town. Thomas Hobson, still a household word in Hobson's choice, a parishioner of St. Bennet's, was an annual donor of one pound. Mr. Sibbs, better known since as Dr. Richard Sibbs, was a distinguished clergyman of the Puritan school, fellow of St. John's, soon afterwards offered the provostship of Trinity College, Dublin, master of Catherine Hall from 1626 till his death in 1635, and for his last two years minister of Trinity Church. His latest biographer, Dr. A. B. Grosset, has called him the English Leighton, a man of genuine learning, firm in troublesome times as the holder and asserter of unpopular convictions, yet one of a meek and quiet spirit, softened but indeed not weakened by divine communion. A sermon of Sibza's, the soul's conflict was the means of the conversion of Richard Baxter. From his lectureship, Sibbs was outed, as an old memoir phrases it, in 1615 for nonconformity, not described in detail. He probably resumed the office when he became minister of the church in 1634. His successor in 1615 was John Jeffrey, or Jeffreys, of Pembroke, who resigned in 1624, and then the post was sought by Paul Micklethwaite of Sydney, supported by the Bishop of Ely and the Heads of Houses, while the citizens wished to elect John Preston, Master of Emmanuel, the bosom friend of Sibs. King James then lay at Royston, and the matter came before him. 
To induce Preston to withdraw, he actually offered him the vacant see of Gloucester. Many admired, writes Fuller, that Dr. Preston should stickle so much for so small a matter as an annual stipend of eighty pounds, issuing out of more than thrice eighty purses, but his party pleaded his zeal not to get gold by, but to do good in the place where, such the confluence of scholars to the church, he might genere patres beget begetters, which made him to waive the bishopric of Gloucester. At Dr. Preston his importunity the Duke of Buckinghamshire, interposing his power, secured it, the lectureship, unto him. The choice, under the circumstances, was worthy of a Christian, and of a man who is described as not only illustrious for a splendid eloquence, but of extraordinary force of character, and burning with the zeal of a seraph. To Preston succeeded Thomas Goodwin, great as his predecessors in character and learning, and a Christian of deep and tender piety. He resigned both the lectureship and the incumbency of the church in 1634 under the pressure of conscientious scruples, for the severe Laudian regime did what it could to restrict all preaching within uncontroverted points. He left England for Holland and the English church for independency, and was Cromwell's chaplain during the protectorate. Among the curiosities of the history of doctrine is the fact that the modern development of the Roman Catholic devotion of the Sacred Heart appears to have a direct connection with Goodwin's devotional treatise, 1642, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, a book which contains, with many spiritual treasures, some obscure and incautious words about a continuous suffering in the glorified body of our Redeemer. The Jesuit confessor of the Duchess of York made a clever use of the book as a sort of Irenicon, and through him it exercised, even in Italy, an influence certainly little intended by its author. Goodwin was succeeded almost immediately by a man as eminent, but of a widely different type of religious thought, Benjamin Whichcote. 1610 to 1683. He was fellow of Emmanuel, and when the parliamentary visitors ejected Samuel Collins from the provostship of kings, Whichcote was made provost, though no friend to the League and Covenant. His neutral position, in which he was at once on good terms with the present powers and in considerable sympathy with the old order, enabled him to protect his college in those troubled days. It is probable that he, among other services, saved from destruction the painted windows of the chapel, which coat was one of that remarkable school of students and thinkers called the Cambridge Platonists. Indeed, he was in some sense its founder. His mental tendency lay away from dogmatic definition and towards the assertion and development of first principles. The third Earl of Shaftesbury, author of The Characteristics of Men, Manners and Opinions, wrote a recommendatory preface to a volume of his sermons published after his death. Two of Whichcote's recorded dicta are memorable and most wholesome if applied truly. God hath set up two lights to enlighten us in our way, the light of reason, which is the light of his creation, and the light of scripture, which is after revelation from him. Let us make use of these two lights, and suffer neither to be put out. There is nothing more unnatural to religion than contentions about it. But enough is said of the ancient history of Trinity Church and its lectureship. To young Simeon, in 1782, that history was almost certainly unknown, and he could not foresee that he would himself do a long life's work there, in which, with unshaken loyalty to the English Church, he would be permitted to repeat, and even to extend, the powerful spiritual influence of some of those older ministers, like them begetting fathers, whose children should travel literally into all lands.
I have often, he says in the memoir already mentioned, when passing Trinity Church, which stands in the heart of Cambridge, said within myself, how should I rejoice if God were to give me that church, that I might preach the gospel there, and be a herald for him in the university. But as to the actual possession of it, I had no more prospect of attaining it than of being exalted to the see of Canterbury. But Thorond died, as we have seen, in that October, and Bishop York knew Mr. Simeon of Reading, and the son asked the father to move the bishop to appoint him. York consented, apparently without hesitation, although the candidate was only a deacon ordained a few months before. The defect of full orders, however, is not a legal bar to appointment to a curacy in charge, and the bishop would certainly have heard a good character of Simeon from Atkinson of St. Edward's. But though the bishop did not hesitate, the parishioners opposed. The lectureship of the 17th century still existed, as it still exists, and was then, as always, an institution apart from the incumbency, at least in theory. The then assistant curate was Mr. Hammond, a name now remembered by this incident only, and the parish wanted Hammond for minister. They resolved in any case to elect him lecturer, and then, in a rather imperative petition, asked the Bishop of Ely to put him in charge of the parish. It was a trying moment for Simeon, with his eager nature, his spiritual and pastoral longings, and the remarkable answer to his deepest wishes in the bishop's consent. But he took then, as ever afterwards, in the real trials of his life, a line of patience and prudence which was surely due to nothing less than secret diligence in prayer. I went to the vestry and told them that I was a minister of peace, that I had no wish for the living, but for the sake of doing them good, and that I would, if upon further reflection it did not appear to be improper, write to the bishop to say that I declined any further competition. He did so, but the letter missed the post, and then he felt himself entitled, by the reserve with which he had spoken, to withhold it, and passively to await the bishop's answer to the petition. If he were appointed, he would make Hammond his substitute, and give him all the profits of the benefice but the parishioners were not so deliberate or so generous. As soon as Simeon had left the vestry, they sent to Ely to announce that he had retired and to press their candidate again. Bishop York, however, was not to be thus coerced out of his choice, and in a letter which still exists, yellow with time, he told Simeon that the church was his if he would accept it. From respect to your father, who has wrote in your favour and confidence in your character, I had intended to have entrusted this preferment to your care. The parishioners have petitioned for Mr. Hammond, and, unless gratified, insinuate their intentions of bestowing their lectureship on another person than my curate. I do not like that mode of application, and if you do not accept it, shall certainly not license Mr. Hammond. I shall await your answer. The knot was thus cut. To decline the church would not give it to Hammond, and to make him the substitute of the minister would now seem a slight upon the bishop. Simeon accepted the charge and preached his first sermon in Trinity Church on November 10, 1782, the day after the bishop wrote the decisive letter. I need not explain how very unpopular the appointment was. It was very plainly shown to be so. The parishioners chose Hammond lecturer at once. By the usage of the office, he thus had a right to the pulpit every Sunday afternoon, leaving only the morning to Simeon. That right he exercised for five years, and was then followed for seven years by another clergyman equally independent. Not till 1794 was the minister chosen to be lecturer also. 
and on Sunday mornings the church for a long while was made as inaccessible as possible to him and his hearers. The pew doors were almost all locked, and the should-be occupants were absent, leaving only the aisles for any congregation that might assemble. On the first Sunday, indeed, aisles and pews alike were nearly empty when the service began, a bitter trial for the lately popular young clergyman, but after a while people trooped in, and multitudes, as the weeks went on, were unable to find room. Simeon set forms in the aisles, and even put up open seats in nooks and corners at his own expense, but these the church wardens pulled down and threw into the churchyard. To visit his people at their homes was impossible, of course, for the present. Scarcely a door would open to Charles Simeon. In this state of things I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this, The servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful, indeed, to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost forsaken, but I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would on the whole be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times, when, without such a reflection, I would have sunk under my burden. I wished rather to suffer than to act, because in suffering I could not fail to be right, but in acting I might easily do amiss. Besides, if I suffered with a becoming spirit, my enemies, though unwittingly, must of necessity do me good, whereas if in acting I should have my own spirit unduly exercised, I must of necessity be injured in my own soul, however righteous my cause might be. End of chapter 3